This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Censorship, collusion, coddling the Biden crime family, and it was all a day's work over at Twitter 1.0. But even when the facts are laid right out in front of them in black and white, the Democrat apologists still cry, Conspiracy theory. More ahead because the show starts now. Late last week, Elon Musk gave us a little December surprise when he and Substack's Matt Taibbi revealed the internal communications between Twitter employees and government officials, showing in plain black and white typeface the censorship and collusion. And when it came to quashing ye old Hunter Biden laptop story, you know, in the fall of 2020, right before that big event known as the presidential frickin' election, Twitter employees and the self-appointed truth czars of the web tried their damnedest to convince even themselves there was basis for marking the content unsafe and worthy of removal. For those who forgot, especially the liberals who conveniently forgot, let me give you a little refresher. The New York Post initially reported on the Hunter Biden laptop and its problematic contents. Twitter then blocked links to the reporting and even prevented users from sharing it in private messages. When the New York Post refused to delete its tweet about the story, Twitter suspended the account for over two weeks. And meanwhile, Joe, Democrats, and a cadre of sleazy former intelligence officials, well, they went to work to characterize it all as Russian disinformation. And they stuck with that BS all the way until, well, to this day, really. This is yet another double down in September of 2021. The president has said, and you have tweeted, that allegations of wrongdoing based on files pulled from Hunter Biden's laptop are Russian disinformation. There is a new book by a political reporter that finds some of the files on there are genuine. Is the White House still going with Russian disinformation? I think it's broadly known and widely known, Peter, that there was a broad range of Russian disinformation back in 2020. Okay. But it's not just the Hunter Biden laptop story cover-up that we learned from Elon's unmasking of the Twitter files. We knew that. That was like a Christmas gift you open after seeing the package itself in the attic months prior and pretend to act surprised. It wasn't new information, just a little validation. But what's even more concerning is the discovery of these back channels certain government officials and U.S. lawmakers had with Twitter employees to handle content they didn't want the world to see. And guess what? Hold on to your hats. The majority of the time, Twitter would go ahead and handle it. And they did it for certain Republicans, too, something Matt Taibbi was very forthright about in his reporting of these Twitter files. But as Matt also noted, because this little back channel was based on contacts at Twitter and the Twitter employee base at least was dominated by liberals, the Democrats had more channels, more access, more resources. And guess what? It's still an issue, folks. Just take a look at the office of then Arizona Secretary of State, now Governor Katie Hobbs, palling around with Twitter to take down inconvenient tweets and flag problematic accounts. But yet, even when we see this crap in black and white, the liberal apologists still tell us we are crazy, still gaslight us into believing we're just tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy theorists. 
And I think my favorite liberal justification for unfair and unbalanced censorship is how they tell us Twitter is a private entity and doesn't have to uphold the First Amendment. And they're so proud of that, you know, trampling on free speech and open discourse because the platform technically has no obligation to not be sleazy, slanted and highly selective. Imagine if these liberals, these Democrats, these green hairs had to deal with a blatantly unfair, unlevel playing field we conservatives have to play on each and every single day. They wouldn't allow it. They'd cry foul or they'd whip out another go-to such as declaring racism, misogyny, bigotry, homophobia, whatever spaghetti they could throw at the wall in hopes of it sticking. But there is a silver lining to all of this and it's Twitter 2.0 under the leadership of Elon Musk. Perhaps I don't want to be overly optimistic here, but perhaps we are at the dawn of a new era wherein conservatives don't have to sprint uphill and can instead just settle for a lesser incline on a playing field that will likely never be fair, but maybe just a little less unfair. So here's to hoping. But up next, do you know what American job sector is experiencing the highest rate of suicide? It's our American farmers and ranchers. Family dairy farmer and agriculture advocate Stephanie Nash joins me in Nashville next. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie, your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer with over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros. Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back. And their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. Angie makes the process seamless. From researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience, Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well. farmers and ranchers are struggling and struggling through no fault of their own. Day in and day out they work, no overtime compensation, 
No paid vacation, no cushy office with a view. No, they brave the elements, Mother Nature, greedy meat packers who undercut them and their product at every turn. And now they must also battle a radical, tree-hugging, vegan, lab-grown, fake meat element that's working tirelessly to end their industry and replace it with bioengineered sludge. So it's no damn wonder suicide, depression, anxiety, and declining mental health is plaguing our American producers. Joining me now is our friend and fourth-generation dairy farmer, Stephanie Nash. So, Stephanie, I saw this about the depression and the suicide plaguing our American farmers and our American cattlemen. It's no surprise to me because I come from a state that's dealing with this, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming. I mean, all of these agriculture states are really dealing with this. But we're about to enter into an era where there might not be any American farmers and ranchers left. And that's a terrifying thought to you and me. But there are people out there that are actually cheerleading this and think it's better for our environment. What do you say about the mental health aspect first that our American farmers and ranchers are facing? Yeah, you know, people talk about agriculture in such a negative light. And when you're talking about mental illness, there's a lot of people from the left that really fight for mental illness and, you know, people being healthy for themselves and for their mind. And no matter what industry you're in, you shouldn't be shaming people for mental illness. And so suicide rates in agriculture increase. And you have to remember that, you know, the average age of a farmer is 60 to 65. And so for losing farmers because of mental illness at that age, and they're selling off their land, what are we going to be looking like in the next 20, 30 years for our food supply? Where are we going to be with, you know, American grown? And how can we challenge family farmers and ranchers to talk about mental illness? Because that's a big thing within yep. agriculture is family farmers and ranchers really don't want to talk about that stuff because they're already fighting prices within agriculture. They're trying to keep their land. They're trying to fight against the government. So we really need to discuss it and help these farmers that are struggling. It's a very prideful group of people as well. And I know this because I come from, like you do, generations of ranchers in South Dakota. And mental health really isn't something that's discussed. And especially old cowboys, they, they don't want to talk about vulnerability or weaknesses. But when you're watching every day something that you work so hard for being taken away from you, you, you watch as the world is changing, but it's changing in a direction that's not progressive, it's not progress, it's not innovation. It's actually ridding generations of people that have worked so hard to cultivate food for America and for the world. And now they're being kind of tossed aside as if they don't matter. I want to also talk about another thing because I think we like to clear up some misconceptions. I love this show Yellowstone, right? I love it. But I also, coming from a ranching family and coming from South Dakota, I know that it is very theatrical. Um, and they bring to light some of the things that farmers and ranchers struggle with. But I think when your average person watches a show like Yellowstone and they see this family with a, a personal chef in a lodge and a helicopter and all brand new pickups, they think, oh, you know, ranchers live high in the hog. Farmers live high in the hog. Look at all these luxury that they have. That is not so for your average farmer and rancher, even in Montana, South Dakota, North Dakota, Tennessee, California. That is not how they live. So I think people might be getting a kind of a skewed perception of what it's like to be in that industry. Yeah, so I was actually with Agriculture Women in Lubbock, Texas last week, and we discussed Yellowstone because some of us really don't like the show or some of us kind of like the show. And I'm kind of more towards liking the show 
just because they do go over issues, right? The activist thing and how John Dutton says, you know, you only like it depending on how cute it is. Because that's really mm -hmm. what activists are. They'll fight for whatever is, you know, the cutest or what is popular. It doesn't matter how it's going to affect the land. And, uh, you know, they also talk about wolves. That's been the new thing on this season. Yeah. And that's happening in New Mexico and Colorado. They're coming. They're hunting. They have the callers from the federal government. And if you shoot one, you are guilty in pr until proven innocent. And so farmers and ranchers are dealing with that. I mean, they're not, you know, discussing it to the extent of what is happening, yeah. um, but it's happening. And so I appreciate some topics that they go over, but when it comes to the money part, I'm telling you right now, family farmers are struggling. We are not getting anything from the government. We are having to fight for our land and our water rights, especially water rights right now. And people have to realize farmers and ranchers, you know, they're giving everything they have just to keep their generational farms. They are, and they're not making money hand over <laughs> fist as some would think. The mm -hmm. ones that are making money in farming and ranching, those are not the family farmers. They're not even the American companies. Mm -hmm. Those are foreign companies, Brazil-based meat packers. They're making a whole lot of money off of our producers and off of global producers, but it's not the people that are actually getting their hands dirty. So I think to me, we talk about mental health. I think it's easy for those that have no concept of what that lifestyle is like to watch a show like Yellowstone and see it really glamorized and think, oh, you know, they, they have a farm or a ranch that's worth multi-million dollars that they could just sell it to the government and live, have generational wealth. That's not the case. But farmers and ranchers are having to sell off their land. Let's talk a little bit about that because who's buying this land is also a concern for me. Yeah, so, you know, I advocate a lot here in Nashville because I see the subdivisions. I see them overreaching into agriculture land. And I'm really encouraging Farm Bureau here in Tennessee and the state to not let, you know, developments or investors come in and rezone land. We have to have agriculture land. We can't just say, you know, we need more places for people to come and live. And that's great if people are, you know, moving to Nashville and moving, you know, to Texas and you know moving out of the big cities but you have to respect agriculture you have to respect mm -hmm. who was here first because even with our dairy farm there's people that oh it smells there's mud on the road they're gonna start complaining because they're not used to it and mm -hmm. so when it comes to land and farmers selling off that's a big thing too because it's not just f other farmers buying land yeah. it's investors it's China it's Russia it's Canada like our our land from foreign countries has grown tremendously. I think it's almost at 40 million acres right now. And so that's a topic we don't talk about enough. You're certainly right about that. And that's another kind of undertone of Yellowstone that I'm happy that they bring up is people. And it happens here, of course, in Nashville and in Tennessee all the time. People move here. They want to escape their blue states. They want to escape the liberal cities. They want to move out and have a hobby farmer ranch, which, by the way, aggravates me to no end. Because you have a chicken does not mean you are a farmer and you do not live on a farm. But that is a, a very hobby thing to do right now. Nothing against those people. But you have to respect people that are actually cultivating land and livestock for us to eat. But there is also a radical element out there that says it's okay if we get rid of farmland. We don't need to produce livestock. We don't need to produce farming because we can just lab grow it all. That's something that is very concerning to me is this new FDA approval of this lab grown meat saying that this is going to now save our environment. We don't need to harvest animals anymore. 
What can you tell us about what's going on with that? Yeah, so this is something I'm very passionate about. I was on the news this last Friday. Three different news stations invited me on because I think it's something going into 2023, you have to consider what is the federal government doing? What is Singapore coming into the United States? Their investors, what is China coming in and Bill Gates? What are they up to? Like, what is their investments? Because the FDA is so, um, you know, encouraging on this processing plant. And I know a lot of family farmers and ranchers, you know, the Biden administration said in the beginning of the year, they want to improve competitive markets and fair pricing. And I know for a fact, the FDA and the USDA is making it hell on family farmers ranches to get permits to build processing plants. But hell, we'll just come in and make a lab grown meat and we'll invest into it. No problem. No questions asked. And so if the American people are listening, you really must pay attention because this is not healthy. This is not productive, not sustainable. The family farm or rancher are producing wholesome products and for Upside Foods to come in and say, we wanna get rid of agriculture. We wanna get rid of family farmers or ranchers. Corporations are investing. They're the ones making the money. And you have to remember that they control the food, they control the people. They control the price as well. Yep. And they control the legacies of so many farmers and ranchers. And going back to just the mental health aspect, you do have farmers and ranchers who are much older in age that have been doing this probably since they were old enough to walk. I know that that's certainly the case in my family. But then you've got younger generations who don't want to pick up the slack. They don't want to enter this industry and you really can't blame them because when you see what's happening, they feel like it is a dying profession. It is a dying way of life, really. Because that's what ranching and farming is. It's not a profession. It's not just something that you do to make a buck. It is a way of life. You live that life you live it day in and day out. There are no breaks, there are no vacations from it. It is always a part of you, you are a part of the land. But now I'm looking at this lab-grown meat, and you and I talk a lot about this beyond meat, you know, when they try to make whatever this is the new thing. I worry also with this lab-grown meat, those that are so into organic and so into everything being free-range, what are they gonna put in lab-grown meat? I, for one, don't want to eat it, but I wonder if the consumer is that aware. Yeah, so I've, kind of done my research about what they're pushing and their marketing and they go after the emotion. They go after, oh, we're, we're going to save an animal. We're not going to kill it or slaughter it. It's coming from the cells of an animal. It's an experiment, okay? We're not raising it as a calf growing up to go into harvest, to be on your dinner table. This is an experiment. Again, they are investing their millions of dollars into this processing plant and they are going to feed you with emotion that you are saving these animals. I'm sorry, that's not what it is, okay? If we take them out of their environment and we, or we just let them run wild, there's disease, there's you know animals like the wolves that are gonna play them for sport, they are not going to be safe and they are not gonna be healthy. That's what the family farmer rancher want for their cattle and for their land. You know, the federal government is trying to take up millions of acres from family farmers and ranchers and it's just sitting there. It's literally just sitting there. That is not sustainable. That is not safe for our food security moving forward. And people really need to get out of the emotion that we abuse our animals and that we don't take care of them because the family farmers and ranchers are not only fighting for grocery prices in the store for you know the people in America and American grown, but we are fighting for you educationally of what we do every day as a family farmer and rancher really are stewards of the land and that is what ranchers and farmers do. They take care of the land. They care more about the land than these big city liberals who are in their skyscrapers. I can tell you that much is for sure because I come from a place like that, as do you. But I wonder, looking forward now, we've got still, you know, we've got a slim majority in the House, not going to have a majority in the Senate. We still got Biden in the White House. We don't have a lot of time to fix a lot of these issues. And I don't know if we have on either side, Republicans or Democrats, 
political leaders who are passionate enough about this. You've got leaders that come from agriculture states, but I don't know if they're fighting enough, and I don't know if they're getting the word out to non-ag states of how important this is. What would your message be to those that are in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, that's the scary part. You know, we don't really have representatives that are fighting hard enough. They don't want to put their neck out there because they don't want to get hurt. They want they don't want to lose their investments. And I think moving forward, we really do need to see more family farmers stepping up, you know, going to Washington, D.C., having those hard dis discussions. And I really would say if you're a politician out there listening, you know, you need to step up. You need to step up for the American people. Inflation is not not only affecting family farmers and ranchers, but everyday Americans, and it's going to affect our food supply. You look at Ukraine, you look at Russia, you look at China, you look at the wars and the overtake of, you know, you know, buying land on American soil. This is going to affect us as the American people, as American family farmers and ranchers. So, you know, just pay attention. Pay attention to the Farm Bill in 2023 and pay attention to this processing plant because it's really attack on our food supply. What about for me, a, a sore spot for me is politicians in my home state that I feel are bought and sold by the meatpacking industry, which is a huge lobby. I mean, it's controlled essentially by four meatpackers, two of them Brazilian, maybe three actually Brazilian. So it's a big problem, and I feel like a lot of politicians, they're getting a lot of money from these special interests, and going against that industry, it is like a mafia. It really is, the meatpacking industry. And I feel like a lot of our politicians are not speaking up for their own constituents because they're getting kickbacks there. What, what do you say to those and what can we do to maybe change that or shine a light on it? Yeah, I mean, you know, we have a lot of representatives. I keep up with California because that's originally where I'm from. A lot of cowards, you know, they're bought in and, you know, they also say behind the scenes that they're going to support the family farmer and rancher and we're going to do our best. And then they get into those political positions and they stab us right in the back. They stab us right in the back. They go on this Green New Deal because they want to be buddy-buddy with this administration and they don't want to get hurt. Um, and they really just need to listen to the family farmer and rancher moving forward. I think we just don't have enough representation in the White House. We have a lot of cowards in the White House. And, uh, you know, we just need to be looking forward um, to what our food security is going to look like here in the United States. Food security is important. And the, and the last thing that I want to ask you, when we talk about things like the Green New Deal, you know, you come from generations of dairy farmers. When, when they hear, when your family members those that work in the industry, your neighbors, when they hear things on the news about another bill that's basically the Green New Deal, these climate change activist bills that come out, what is their mental state like when they hear this and how popular it's become to push this extreme environmentalism? Yeah, you want to talk about mental illness, killing a farmer and rancher's you know, identity is regulations and bills against us. You know, you're already in debt, you're already struggling with unfair pricing, competitive markets, and then you have more regulations and they want you to do this and that for the planet and they want you to save you know what they are trying to do with their agenda because that's all that's really all it is it's their agenda and they want to put it at the top and so when family farmers and ranchers continue to hear this it's very disheartening a lot of family farmers are just selling off because they can't fight they have nobody to fight for them and that is why i created a platform for advocacy and it's a hard conversation a lot of companies you know they're like well you're going against everything we stand for exactly somebody's got to push you somebody's got to have those you know issues out there to talk about agriculture because we don't talk about agriculture enough. We don't talk about how 97% of our land and water is owned by family farmers and ranchers. And that's going to go away if we continue in the direction that we are continuing as a country.
And it's either going to be bought up by people that are vacationing and have a second home, or it's going to be bought up by China and other mm -hmm. countries. So it's important for our food security. It's important for our national security and for the way of life that truly is American at its core. Stephanie, you fight the good fight. You're out there, and you don't back down to anybody. And I always appreciate having the conversation. Thank you so much once again for coming in. All right, still ahead, another badass woman on deck. She went from head of the world's most famous denim brand to canceled all to her outspoken view on COVID and the forced masking of children. Jennifer Say joins me next. She spent 23 years at Levi Strauss and worked her way up in the ranks into a high-level executive position. But she says after being vocal about COVID and against the masking of children and other tyrannical pandemic policies, she was pushed out of the company. Joining me now with her story is former global brand president of Levi's and the author of Levi's Unbuttoned, Jennifer Say. Jennifer, thank you so much for being with me. And I have to say, in reading about your story, I read that you have always been a self-proclaimed lifelong liberal. So what was the difference maker for you? Not necessarily that you're a conservative now, but maybe not self-described a liberal as you were before. Yeah, I, I wouldn't describe myself as such now, um, but I would make the case that my principles have not changed. I am loyal to principles, not party. And what I thought it meant to be progressive was to want equality of opportunity for all, not equality of outcome, but equality of opportunity. And so when the schools in my uh, city where I used to live, I don't live there anymore, San Francisco, the public schools were closed for 18 months, children were the most restricted of any human beings um, alive during the COVID pandemic, which, you know, in some regards is still going. Um, and they were the least at risk. Uh, they had the most to lose from these just onerous, onerous restrictions. I stood up. I couldn't, um, I couldn't take the lie at face value that schools needed to be closed and that children needed to stay home forever and never see anyone or else they would you know, kill everyone, kill all the teachers and kill all their grandparents. And, you know, we've now seen the data shows that I was correct. Schools should have been open. The harms have been catastrophic from learning loss and mental health impacts. And so, you know, as a, this should never have been political is really the point. Our children should never have been politicized. And I wouldn't accept the lie that they needed to stay home. And, you know, the best illustration of that lie is that private schools were opened. Private schools opened in the fall of 2020. My peers were all sending their kids to in-person private school, yet telling me I could not speak out and advocate for open public schools. I won't accept a lie. Um, and so I didn't uh, stay quiet and I eventually was pushed out of the company because of it. What's so wild to me is, like you said, this should have never been political, but I feel as a lifeline conservative that was political for other reasons, one being an election and another being that the economy could shut down and get more people dependent on government. That's really what I believe. I believe this was all part of a plan. Of course, COVID is a very real thing. It impacted so many people, and it clearly is a virus that killed so many. But on the other side of it, it was very political. And although we're finding the evolving science, I think a lot of the science was known from the get-go, and it was more the control that was necessary for certain political parties and certain leaders, really on both sides of the aisle, unfortunately. But I will say this, talking about these policies and how taboo it was to go against them, I mean, in 2020, 2021, and even the early part of 2022, if you said anything about masks or vaccines, you were shamed, demonized, and lambasted. I think it's starting to change a little bit now. But tell me what it was like in your role, especially being a powerful woman in a leadership position, what you had to deal with for being vocal? 
I mean, you know, when I started, I started literally as soon as school shut down, because to your point, the data was actually already there. And we know many countries, Sweden never shut primary schools. Denmark opened their schools just three weeks after they shut down, just three weeks because they said the harms to children would be too great. There was a pre-pandemic playbook written by the CDC in 2006 that said never, ever, ever shut schools for more than a few weeks. And yet we were two weeks, two months, two years into it, and people were still arguing that we needed to keep children out of school. Um, so you can imagine, and, and it became religious in nature. It was like, yep. you had to believe this to be a good person. And I was, me and my husband were like the only people that I knew in all of San Francisco, which is as lefty, 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 you know, it was worse in, you know, the more liberal, the more democratic the state or city, the worse it was. And we were literally the only ones. Now that started to change a little bit in the fall of 2020, but we would lead rallies that were very sparsely attended. You know, people were afraid and I had people reach out to me all the time that they agreed with me, but that they could not stand with me, that they couldn't attend the rallies because they were afraid. They would be demonized as you just described. They would be called terrible names. They were afraid of losing their jobs. And I just wouldn't accept that because I, I, we cannot accept a lie. We cannot allow ourselves to be silenced. It's that chilling effect. Um, that creates this this terrible, terrible censorship and stands in the way of the search for truth and ultimately, in this case, harmed our children. And to go off of that as well, there was a time in 2020 when the United States as a whole really forgot about COVID about two weeks in May when we had the social justice rioting. I mean, that was fine. And in fact, those that were the self-appointed czars of truth and science said that it's okay if you're gathering in the streets to protest and to riot and dilute. Somehow COVID does not spread in those instances or it doesn't matter. And then once that was over or in some places it's still going on, once it lessened, then COVID was back again. But I, I wonder, in your position, do you ever make that calculation that you would end up losing a career, a job that you had worked so hard for? Was that even in your mind that that was possible, this cancel culture? I, I think I knew, you know, at the, right at the beginning, I did not think it was possible. I thought common sense would prevail. And then I thought once the private schools opened in August of 2020, I thought certainly everybody's going to see the hypocrisy. They've been marching in the streets um, for black lives. They've been screaming about equality and, you know, joining the fight for equality. And the fact is in public schools, in San Francisco public schools in particular, 60% of the children are low income. They are predominantly low income black and brown students. And so I thought they'll see it if they care about this issue like that. This is how naive I was, okay? <laughs> um, they'll see it, they'll see the hypocrisy, they'll agree that schools need to open and that we need to let our, let our kids have their lives back. And yet that did not happen. And by the spring of 2021, as I was writing op-eds and you know attending school board meetings and appearing on the local news, um, ultimately I appeared on a national news program on Fox with Laura Ingram. She invited me, and that was really when you know I guess I put the nail in my own <laughs> in my own coffin, so to speak. Um, because at that point, people were actually starting to say, "Okay, yeah, we need to get the schools open." So at that point, my crime was that I had spoken with the enemy. I didn't right. actually say anything wrong. And many employees acknowledged I didn't say anything wrong. But the fact that I dared to speak with this person that they found reprehensible, that was enough. And they just for the, you know, at that point, I realized this may be it for me, but I'm not stopping because it's the right thing to do.
Yeah, and that's what's so interesting as well. I mean, Levi's is a, is a global company. Do the folks at Levi's, do they not think that maybe conservatives and Fox News viewers wear denim? Uh, that's what's very odd to me, is that they live in this bubble. These companies live in this bubble, and they don't care. They will post Ukraine flags. They will post pride flags. They will post black squares for Black Lives Matter. But they will not acknowledge anything else or anybody else that has a different opinion than them. And, and I think that, for me, that is the most challenging aspect of these big companies. They don't know their customer base, or at least half of their customer base. They, you know, in a sense... I raised this point all the time. Levi's, more than any other fashion company, has more red state consumers. You know, it really is a brand, as you well know, that everybody wears. So they do kind of know, but they live in such a bubble in San Francisco. I think 96% of the voters are registered Democrat that they they think it's these other people, these other crazy people that we don't need to worry about. And in a sense, because they're really targeting younger consumers, younger consumers buy more fashion, they have more influence. And, you know, it's it's an attempt to pander to these younger consumers and their social activism. And it's a it's a calculation. You know, they very much believe that this is financially expedient. But I agree with you when you're cutting off um, contact, essentially, or appeal to half of your possible consumer base in the country, um, it's not a good financial decision. You know, it's just not a good business decision. And I think ultimately, companies are going to have to rethink this and get back to marketing products, making great products, marketing to the widest possible audience and treating all employees with fairness because that's not happening either. No, it certainly isn't in California, certainly not, and I don't really see a light at the end of the tunnel there. I, I think that they are doomed. I mean, just look at the governor of that godforsaken state. Yeah. I lived there for several years, so I know this, but I wanna get your take as somebody that's in fashion and obviously works with brand management. You are an expert on this. A couple weeks ago, I guess even the start of last week, we had this big Balenciaga scandal. So there were certain celebrities, Kim Kardashian being one of them, that did speak out. We don't really know what her relationship is going to be with Balenciaga moving forward. But there's been a lot of really disturbing things that have come out about some of the heads of that fashion house. When you saw all that, especially being in your position, what was your first thought? You know, I'm trying to distance myself from the whole industry right now. Um, I find that, you know, and I'll, I'll admit, I haven't dug too deep on this one, but I don't know what they were thinking. And I know the company Balenciaga has said it was our agency. You know, they did this without our knowledge, which is, there's no way that's true. You know, as, as a client um, on the Levi's side, the head of the brand uh, that managed many, many agencies at one time, nothing goes out without your approval and endorsement. So, you know, they're not really admitting that, of course, they were complicit. And I just don't understand what they were. I honestly, Tommy, I can't imagine what was going through their minds here. It, it's just so insane and ludicrous. Um, this is what I don't have a, a real opinion on, but I think the industry is very reluctant to call folks like this out. You know, luxury is revered within the fashion industry. Look how long it took um, for anyone in fashion really to call Kanye out because of the statements he made. And look how long it took Adidas to say, you know, we're not going to work with the guy anymore. Um, it took a really long time. Um, everyone panders to the luxury brands. No, that's certainly the case. And it's that double standard that I think is so infuriating 
to so many. I mean, you've got a brand here that's sexualizing children. And then on the other side of this, all obviously apples to oranges, but you have you that's saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't lock kids out of their school and destroy and have generational learning loss and destroy their extracurriculars and their ability to socialize. And then somehow you, you were seen as the devil, certainly in San Francisco. But I want to ask you this, because I think this is so important. Do you regret what you did? And what would you say to others who are a little bit timid to speak out. They want to say something, but they are fearful of cancel culture. They are fearful of losing their job, their position, and maybe a possible promotion. A lot of young people in schools, they're afraid of not having friends. What is your message to them about what you did? You know, you have to do it. You have to stand up. The only thing that protects our free speech is more speech. And I know it's scary. And look, I'm here to tell you that cancel culture is real. Um, But I think we are the majority. I think the people who actually care about free expression and who care about truth, we may not agree on every subject, but we care about the search for truth. And we can't have that if we don't have open debate and dissent. And you've got to just stand up. Truth is literally on the line. And it sounds dramatic, but I think democracy is on the line. You know, free speech is a pillar of our of our country, of our constitution. If we sacrifice this and we give it up for for safety or to just avoid being criticized, we are really giving up up on this project, this American project. Uh, We are giving up on freedom and I think we're giving up on truth. And so the book is really a call to arms in a sense um, and hopefully encourages people to screw up their courage just a little bit because if we all stand together and push back on these lies, we're the majority. I honestly believe that. I'm so happy that you're doing what you're doing. Such a strong woman that so many look up to, saying that you believe in what you did, you stand by what you did, and it's a very liberating feeling to stand in the truth and in your truth and to never back down and never play dead. So, Jennifer, thank you so much, and everyone should check out your book, Levi's Unbuttoned, for more of the story and everything and your message that you want to share with so many Americans out there. Thank you for your bravery and standing up against cancel culture, and you're welcome back anytime. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Jennifer. All right, up next, Elon is going to bat for us and doing it at great personal risk. My final thoughts are next. Elon Musk is the free speech watchdog we desperately need. He's thrown himself into the fire for all of us, and we owe him a debt of gratitude. It's time for Final Thoughts, powered by Four Patriots. When Elon Musk bought Twitter and likely way overpaid for the bot-infested, green hair, blue check dustbin that it was, I was cautiously optimistic he would do what he vowed to do, bring back some semblance of free speech and level the big tech playing field. Now, he's still got a lot of work to do, but he's off to a damn good start. But it doesn't come without its risks to his businesses, his legacy, his personal safety. And for that, we owe him. He took on the big tech machine, did it knowing it would piss off the faux gatekeepers of truth, fact, and narrative. He did it knowing those in high places in the halls of our U.S. government and elites around the world with something to hide and a deep disdain and fear for the truth would come for him. All of his businesses from Tesla to Neuralink to SpaceX and more will be under the microscope. When the president and then his boneheaded press secretary said they will look into Elon, they weren't kidding. They will. They've already begun. Our government will actively work to ruin him financially and personally the same way they did to Donald Trump. The man they once praised for his innovation and intelligence will be dismantled before our very eyes and all because he dared to create space for free speech.
And just like Donald Trump, Elon Musk entered the lion's den when he didn't have to, and he did it so us little people could fight back and have a voice. Like Donald Trump did for the forgotten Americans, Elon is doing for the perpetually silenced and censored online. Elon himself noted his risk of assassination is quite significant, and he's right. There is nothing those in power fear more than what's been done in the dark coming to light. Isn't that sad? So thank you, Elon. Thank you for risking so much to bring a little fairness and a little integrity back to the platform that claimed to be that from its inception. Now, if only Facebook and Instagram could get their own Elon, there just might be hope for the metaverse yet. Those are my final thoughts. Be sure to catch the entire show as well as exclusive content on Outkick.com. Also, be sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Tommy Laren. From Nashville, God bless and take care.